Excuse me, Genesis. Excuse me again, Galatians. What am I saying? Galatians. Galatians. That's what happens when you're all over the Bible. You forget where where you are after a while. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. This is the very end of the epistle. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Father, we thank you for your word once again. And I would just simply ask that you would open our eyes to see why Paul would only boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, may we see it clearly. And Father, may this be our boast, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may we grow in our love for the cross just a little bit more tonight for having looked at this passage. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. Well, in verse 11, we see that Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, this is significant because up until this point in the letter, or epistle, means the same thing, kids. Up until this point in the epistle, Paul has been dictating this letter through an amanuensis, or very simply, a secretary. But at this point, Paul basically says to whoever his amanuensis was, uh, please hand me the pen, and I'm going to write this last section myself with my own hand. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Paul usually didn't write his letters. matter of fact, he never wrote his letters. Uh, but he would always sign his letters. This is what we read at the very end of Second Thessalonians in 3.17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So while Paul would dictate his letters, at the very end, he would pick up the pen and he would basically sign on a dotted line to verify that it was indeed a letter from the Apostle Paul so that the genuineness of the letter could be verified by those who would read it and the churches that would be listening to this letter. 
But in Galatians, right here, Paul does something more than just sign the letters. He actually writes the last part of the passage. And we should ask ourselves, well, why does he write the last part of the passage? Why doesn't he just sign his name at the end, which was his regular custom? Well, we don't know exactly, um, but I suspect Paul is writing with his own hands because he wants his readers to understand the seriousness of what he's saying at the end. Now, why didn't Paul usually write his letters? A number of reasons have been given. Uh, perhaps poor eyesight. He couldn't see very well. I'm sure you can sympathize with that, Carol. Writing, what, I can't see what I'm writing. Uh, another possibility is perhaps he had difficulty with his hand and it was very hard for him to write. Uh, but whatever the reason, uh, he would have someone dictate the letters for him. But he breaks custom here so that he can write the last part of this letter himself. And he's doing so because he wants his listeners to pay close attention to what he's about to write. He is doing this for emphasis. Because they're reading this and say, the Apostle Paul, in his condition, whatever that was, wants us to read what he's writing. And he's writing it with his own hand. It must be very important. And indeed, it is very important. And basically, what we have at the end of the letter is his argument and his concern summarized. And what is that argument? What is that concern? And basically, it's this. Circumcision counts for nothing. Uncircumcision counts for nothing. The only thing that matters, the only thing that counts in the Christian life is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you kids, 10 and under, what is the main symbol of Christianity? Anybody 10 or under want to tell me? Somebody at least guess. 10 or under, the main symbol of the Christian faith. The cross. Thank you very much. Zach, did you have any help? You had a little help. That's okay. That's all right. That's, you know, those homeschoolers are always helping each other. <laughs> the cross. And let me ask all of you, why is it the cross? Why isn't it the manger? Why isn't it the empty tomb? Why isn't it the dove that represents the Holy Spirit? Why is it the cross? And I don't think anyone would argue with that. Why is it the cross? Because without the cross, there is no Christianity. Uh, the cross basically is a shorthand for the Gospel. When you talk about the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, we know instinctively we're talking about the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about Jesus Christ who died for our sins. And apart from that, there is no Christianity. So we all know instinctively the cross is at the very center of Christianity. And in this section, Paul is talking about the importance of the cross. Now, why is he emphasizing the importance of the cross. Wouldn't all Christians understand the importance of the cross? You would think so, but not always. And actually, the cross and the gospel itself was being undermined among the Galatians. And because it was being undermined, Paul writes some of the strongest things that you will find in any of his letters. Turn to Galatians 1, if you will. 
Galatians opens pretty much like any epistle does. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, and then he talks about who he's writing to, to the churches in Galatia. And then we have a common greeting. And verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then usually, Paul has some word of commendation for the church. Even the church at Corinth, as messed up as that church was, Paul had some nice things to say about their faith and how it was spreading. Paul doesn't have any kind words for the Galatians. As soon as he identifies himself, himself, and then he talks about how he's writing to the Galatians, and then gives them the greetings, this is the first thing he says in verse 6. This is how he begins. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See what's happening here? I'm astonished you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be, according to the NASB, eternally condemned. We would say simply, let him be damned. That's strong. Paul is upset. That, that's why there's no kind words. That's why he begins right out of the chute, as it were. I'm astonished. You're, you're turning to another gospel? How can you listen to these people? If anyone preaches another gospel, let them be damned. And we're like, oh. Paul is upset. And he is upset. Because if you turn people away from the gospel, you shipwreck their souls. And this, this is what's happening to God's people. They are actually turning away from the gospel. He, he's not upset because they have different views of baptism. He, he's not upset because they have different views of fulfilled prophecy. He is upset because they are turning to a different gospel. Now, who's causing this problem? A group of people known as Judaizers. Look at Galatians 6.12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. In 2.12, he calls them the circumcision party. And this is basically their gospel. Salvation is achieved via faith in Jesus Christ and works of the law, especially circumcision. They were telling these Gentiles who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, sorry, but that's not good enough. You also need to be circumcised and you need to follow the Mosaic law if you hope to be saved. Simply put, it was salvation of faith plus works. Which means, by implication, they were saying faith alone is not sufficient for salvation. God's grace alone is not sufficient for salvation. And 
the cross of Jesus Christ atoning for sin alone is not sufficient. Now, why were the Judaizers preaching this false gospel? Paul gives two reasons right at the end here and they're related to one another. The first answer we just read in verse 12. He said they're trying to make a good show in the flesh. They're forcing you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. What would happen in the first century if a Jew preached faith in Christ alone? They'd be persecuted. So they're turning to these Gentiles and they're preaching, yes, faith in Christ, but also follow the law of Moses because then they can go back to their Jewish brothers and say, no, 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 there's nothing to be upset about. We're, we're telling them they got to be circumcised. They have to follow the law of Moses. And Paul is getting right to the heart of their motives. They're only doing this so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So they can go back to their Jewish brothers and say, you know, not only are we telling them to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, but they're doing so. And look at all these converts we have to Judaism. But in the meantime, what is happening to people's trust in Christ for salvation? It's being completely upset. Wouldn't your confidence be upset? If you were told all you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. That's it. And then someone says, by the way, you have to be circumcised. And the men would all go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you're told you've you got to keep the law of Moses. And then you're saying, okay, so faith isn't enough. I've I got to be circumcised. I've got to keep the whole law of Moses. Uh, this is pretty difficult. And this is why they were called Judaizers. They were basically turning these Christians into Jews. Now, today, is that a problem? Uh, today, we don't have Judaizers per se. Um, I think what we have, really, I'm going to call them moralizers. Uh, those who preach faith in Christ and living a good life. And turn on any Christian television and often you'll see not salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but basically you need to live a good life. Yes, faith in Christ and a good life. And I think for the same reason that the Judaizers were preaching this. They didn't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And they wanted to go among their secular friends and be able to say, no, we're just call, calling people to live a good life. Who can argue with that? Well, I can't argue with that. Who can argue with that? They're taking away the offense of the cross. And we have to realize that the cross is always offensive. Always. And maybe we should ask this question. Why is the cross offensive? It's called a stumbling block. Is it really that much of a stumbling block? Is it really that offensive? It is. It is highly offensive. Because what does the cross imply? It implies very clearly that you are a wretched sinner... And unless God intervenes on your behalf, you're going to hell. You're perishing. 
And if you think this isn't offensive, I would challenge some of you Monday morning when you go to work, talk to some of your co-workers, ask them if they went to church on Good Friday, ask them if they understand what Good Friday is all about, and ask them if you could talk to them about the importance of the cross for their salvation and see if they're not offended. They are offended. People are offended. Because you're implying that they're wretched and there's nothing that they can do. And pastors, even today, will feel that offense. So they'll want to say, you know, you can live a good life. Believe in Jesus and, and live a good life so that they can tone down the offense of the cross. Can't have it. The cross alone is our only hope. Not only is it highly offensive, but the cross is highly threatening. Highly threatening. And you say, in what way? Uh, Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, told this story about a woman, and it really stuck with me. He was preaching the gospel in one of his services, and he made it clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are justified by faith apart from any works of the law. And a woman came up to, up to him afterwards and said, I've been in many churches. This is the first time that I've ever heard that there is absolutely nothing I can do for salvation. It is completely a work of God. It is by faith alone. And she said, you know what? That's kind of scary. And he said, well, what do you mean that's scary? And she said, well, if salvation is a joint effort between God and myself, then after my salvation, it seems that I have some kind of say in the Christian life because after all, I contributed something to my salvation. But if salvation is 100% a work of God and I have nothing to do with my salvation, then it seems that once I become a Christian, there is nothing that God cannot ask of me. Because I am solely His. And she said, that's frightening. And that's always stuck with me. I thought, that's interesting. People understand the implications. They're wretched. There's nothing they can do. It's all up to God. And then afterwards, they have to yield themselves completely to God. And that's scary. But here's the thing. We will never experience liberation. We will never experience true freedom until we really can, until we can just stretch ourselves out before God and say, here I am. I, I do surrender all. Here I am, God, whatever you want of me. I'm yours. No reservations. I hold nothing back. My house, my car, my spouse, my, my children what I'm going to do with my life, it, I, I am at your disposal 100%. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'm yours. And that's frightening. That's frightening. But that's salvation. That's salvation. That's not a decision we make later in the Christian life. And that's a big mistake that we've made. We think, well, up, up front, the first thing you can do is make a decision for Jesus. And, and I was taught this at a Bible college. 
by different professors. You, you make a decision for Jesus Christ and then sometime later in the Christian life, you place yourself on the altar like we see in Romans 12 too, and you say, here I am as a living sacrifice. Now I will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It doesn't work that way. And we have to wonder, why is it seen that so many Christians aren't surrendered and we think, well, they haven't taken that second step. Perhaps they haven't taken the first step. And they haven't really put their faith in God and bowed and confessed that He is Lord. And if He is Lord, that means we're slaves. He owns us. And remember, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, He can tell us whatever He wants to tell us. We don't belong to ourselves. The implications are clear. It's highly offensive. Highly threatening. But in contradistinction to the Judaizers, we have the Apostle Paul. And what does he say? But far be it from me to boast, except in one thing, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would Paul boast in the cross of Jesus Christ above all things? I just jotted down a few things here. Because only on the cross was the wrath against sin satisfied. Because only the cross demonstrates the depth of God's love for the world. Because only the cross cancels our sin and condemnation. Because only the cross can cleanse our guilty conscience. Because only the cross can provide us with access into the Holy of Holies. Because only the cross can sufficiently show a husband how to love his wife. Because only the cross can deliver us from the fear of death. Because only the cross disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities. Because only the cross brought about the demise of the devil. Because only the cross can unleash the power of God in the Gospel. Because only the cross can demolish the dividing wall of hostility between races because only the cross can reconcile the world to God because only the cross shows how the greatest evil is meant by God to be the greatest good because only the cross can deliver us from our bondage to sin because only the cross can bring us to God. Why would Paul boast in the cross? Because only the cross can give us what we need ultimately. God Himself. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 3.18? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Only the cross can do that. Which is why Paul would boast in the cross and which why on another occasion he said, you know what? I basically have one message when I preach. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, does Paul really mean that? Did he really mean among the Corinthians... He, he didn't preach anything except Jesus and Him crucified. Did He really mean it? Isn't that hyperbole? Isn't He exaggerating a little bit, stretching? Did He really mean that? Literally? When Paul said, I, I only boast in the cross, did He mean only the cross? Didn't He boast in other things? 
Only the cross? What, what does he mean by this? This is what I, I think he means. Jesus Christ and the cross are like the hub of a wheel. And then you have all these other spokes that go out from the cross. And yes, Paul talked about marriage. He talked about family. He addressed slaves and masters. He talked about stealing. He talked about telling the truth. He talked about using your spiritual gifts. He talked about encouraging one. He talked about loving one. He talked about a whole host of subjects. But they're all connected to the hub, the cross. Everything about the Christian life is related to the cross, which helps us to see if you destroy the cross, the whole Christian life goes flying in different directions and you really don't have a Christian life. Everything that we have, we owe to the cross. Here's how John Piper put it. For redeemed sinners, every good thing, indeed every bad thing that God turns for good, was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. Did you get that? Let me say that again. For redeemed sinners... Every good thing, indeed, every bad thing that God turns for good was obtained for us by the cross of Christ. Apart from the death of Christ, sinners get nothing but judgment. Apart from the cross of Christ, there is only condemnation. Therefore, everything that you enjoy in Christ as a Christian, as a person who trusts Christ, is owing to the death of Christ. And all your rejoicing in all things should therefore be a rejoicing in the cross where all your blessings were purchased for you at the cost of the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's profound. Every blessing that we have was purchased by Jesus Christ at the cross. He goes on and he says, one of the reasons... We are not as Christ-centered and cross-saturated as we should be is that we have not realized that everything, everything good and everything bad that God turns to good of His redeemed children was purchased by the death of Christ for us. We simply take life and breath and health and friends and everything for granted. We think it is ours by rights. But the fact is that it is not ours by rights. It was purchased by Christ. And we don't deserve any of this. And Paul understood that he didn't deserve anything that he had as a Christian. And he understood that everything good that he had as a Christian was tied to the cross. So that it only makes sense. I can only boast in the cross because it brings about all the good that I have. And you can see why he would be so upset with these Judaizers who were preaching another gospel, undermining the cross, undermining the confidence of these Christians. Notice something else in verse 14. While there's one cross, there are three crucifixions. One cross, three crucifixions. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there, of course, you have the crucifixion of Christ. And then he says, by which the world has been crucified to me. There's a second crucifixion. And then he says, and I to the world. There's the third crucifixion. So Christ has been crucified. And as a result of that crucifixion, Paul is saying the world's been put to death to me and I have been put to death 
to the world. What, what is he saying? He's saying, the power that the world has upon me has been killed, has been put to death. And on the other side, my attraction for the world also has been put to death so that I don't have an attraction going this way. So going both ways, Paul says the crucifixion has taken place. And what does he mean by the world? Of course, he's not talking about the gifts of God in the world. He's talking about those things in the world that are opposed to God. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boasting in what a man possesses, those kinds of things. He says, I've been set free from the tyranny of worldliness and its grip on me. I no longer have to live according to that. I've been set free. And only one thing set me free. And it wasn't circumcision. It was the cross of Jesus Christ that set me free from the world and the hold that it had upon me. He's now a new creation. Verse 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the only thing that matters. What does the cross bring about? New creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have gone away. Behold, all things have become new. So because of the cross, sin has been put to death. The world has been put to death. Even he has been put to death. That's, that's significant as well. Sometimes we think, Jesus died so that I could live. And that's true. But Jesus died also so that we could die to sin the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus died so that we could die. Earlier in Galatians, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He now lives a completely different life, a completely new life. He's now a new creation. He is not the same person. Totally new person. Even if he looks the same on the outside. He's a totally new person on the inside. Many of you are familiar with uh, St. Augustine. wrote many good books, confessions. Uh, before he came to Christ, he lived a very immoral life. Uh, his mother pleaded for his salvation, persevered, never gave up, continued to pray for her godless, immoral son. And then God got a hold of him. And he's now become one of the greatest theologians in the history of the Christian church. But soon after his conversion, he was walking down the streets in Milan, Italy. And he was accosted by a prostitute whom he had known very intimately for some time. She called him by name, Augustine. And he kept right on walking. Didn't slow down for a moment. Augustine! He kept right on walking. Finally, she said, Augustine, it is I. And he kept right on walking. He didn't slow down. And he said, but it is not I. What was he? He was leaving his old life. Yes, that's how I used to live. But he understood enough just after his conversion to say, "It's not I. You don't understand. I am not the same old. I'm not the same person." And he's moving on to a new life because of what Christ had done for him. Christ had set him free through the cross. Only the cross can do that. And then it's great how Paul says in 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, the cross, the gospel, not looking for the 
looking for salvation and law-keeping. He says, Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What is he saying? These people, and these people alone, experience the mercy and peace of God. And what a blessing that is. A couple of weeks ago, I was helping the Begins move some furniture, and we saw Jehovah's Witnesses going throughout the neighborhood. And it was spring break, and Sue made some kind of comment along the lines of, well, I guess they don't get any rest over spring break. And I said, you know what, that, that rest is a good comment. Because they have no rest when it comes to their salvation. Because they are working for their salvation. They are knocking on doors in the hopes that Jehovah will somehow be pleased. And that maybe, just maybe, they will do enough good works so that they will be welcomed into heaven. But they can never be assured that they have done enough. Why? Because everybody instinctively knows that it's, it's perfection. How do you please a perfectionist? Some of you had parents who were perfectionists. <laughs> How do you please a perfectionist? You don't. So you always feel like you fall short. They, they have no rest. They have no peace. They, they can't lay their pillow, you know, lay their head down at night on the pillow and think, ah, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They can't say that. They can only say, I've only hoped that I've done enough. I only hope that I've knocked on enough doors. I only hope I've led enough Bible studies. I only hope I've done enough evangelism. I only hope I've lived a good enough life. You haven't. Because what God requires is perfection. And there's only one person who lived a perfect life. And that was Jesus Christ. So unless you're Jesus, you're in trouble. So through the cross, our sins are taken away. And then Jesus gives us His righteousness. So now when God sees us, we are perfect. Try that one at work Monday. Did you know that I'm perfect? (laughs) Perfect in the presence of God because of what Christ has done for me. And we can experience peace. We can experience true rest. Only because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, may we never be ashamed of the cross. May we never undermine the cross. May we be clear as we tell others about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, may we cling to the cross. May we never turn away from it because it is our only hope. And Father, may we boast in the cross Father, may we love to sing about the cross, not just on Good Friday, but all year long. Because the cross is our only hope. Father, thank you that we know this salvation through the cross. Father, I pray that everyone tonight will look to the cross and embrace it as their only hope of forgiveness of sins, of salvation. 
of reconciliation with you. In Jesus' name, amen.